0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast here on my YouTube channel. Listen, I have the great honor and privilege today of bringing to you an interview that I did yesterday with the great Rob Wolf. And I'm super excited to bring that to you. It was a fantastic interview. I had an absolute blast. And it's really cool for me because I've been a fan of Rob's work for literally 16 years, uh, Rob Wolf was was very instrumental in me converting from my typical, you know, bodybuilding diet of the 90s, you know, chicken and rice every two to three hours, uh, and converting into at that time a very strict Paleo diet, which then evolved into the the keto uh, movement and is now sort of pivoting on the axis of keto and carnivore. And Rob himself even admits in the interview that that's kind of where he's landed these days as well. So it's really, really interesting when we get to that. Um, Rob is a former research biochemist, which is to say that he's really freaking smart. And he's always been a go-to resource for me to always validate what I'm doing as a coach and a trainer with my clients. And uh, so he's an ongoing resource for me and has been for, like I said, 16 years. Um, not only is he a research biochemist, but he's also a two-times New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, two phenomenal books. And he's also co-authored a new book called Sacred Cow, which is also a killer documentary that I highly recommend you watching. I'll leave links to all of these resources in the show notes. So another great thing about Rob is he's no stranger to performance. He actually started the first and fourth, CrossFit gym affiliates back in the early 2000s when that whole thing was kicking off, which is pretty cool. He's also a former collegiate powerlifting, uh, California State powerlifting champion. And these days he is you know heavily involved and heavily steeped in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, world as a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So he's no stranger to uh, kicking ass in the gym. So um needless to say, it was a fantastic interview, and I'm excited to bring that to you today. So I hope you enjoy it. I had a great time, and I look forward to having Rob on the show again. So hang in there for the whole thing. I promise you there's going to be something in there for just about everybody. So I'm really excited to bring it to you. Listen, before we get started, real quick, because I want to get right to this interview. If you want to support the show and get an amazing product at the same time, I highly recommend checking out Manscaped.com. Manscaped.com, if you don't already know, is the world heavyweight champion leader in head-to-toe and below-the-waist men's grooming. So if you're like most people in the fitness realm, or if you compete, or if you just like showing off all your hard work and you don't want to covered up in layers of freaking wookie hair, then uh, the trimmers are going to be your almost daily go-to. I use mine literally every day. Not only to keep things tidy from head to toe, but also to keep it tidy below the waist. And trust me, your girl or whomever will appreciate you doing that. So if you go to manscape.com, pick up one of their trimmers, one of their performance packages, they have other great products like shampoos and body washes and all these cool things. Throw something in your cart, enter the code KGB20 at checkout, and you will save 20% off your purchase and get free shipping. So... Go to manscaped.com, support the podcast, get some great trimmers at a great discount and free shipping. So thank you for supporting the podcast. And Lastly, hit that red subscribe button because it goes a long way in getting those YouTube algorithms swirling out there. And what it does is it recommends our content to other like minded people and helps us kind of spread the word with what we're doing out there. So I'd really appreciate you doing that. And we've got some really cool videos on the horizon. So hit that notification bell and you'll always be notified when something new pops up on the channel. So. Without any further delay, I wanna get right to the interview that I had yesterday with Rob Wolf. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast. I'm your humble host, Rob Goodwin, and with me today, I'm proud and excited to say we have the OG, the man, the myth, the legend, the great, wise, and powerful, Rob Wolf. Thank you so much for being here today, my brother.
1: The, the two Robs of the apocalypse. <laughs> I'm honored to be here.
0: And uh, thanks for being here on St. Patrick's Day. Have you been day drinking it all yet? Are you like three sheets to the wind yet? Or- we
1: we have our invite, and we're just trying to figure out how to get the kids uh, to jujitsu and home, and then make our our obligation to hit uh, the the local <laughs> Irish pub. So yeah, we're it's in process. So it's like everybody's Irish today, right? Is that is that right. what it, is that the deal? Right. Okay, I
0: just didn't right. know how that worked. I have to get out of the gym and get involved in that shit. So. Uh, Anyway, welcome to the Island of Misfit Toys. I mean, this is kind of where we're at. We're kind of a niche group here. And uh, I know from, you know, I've been sort of advertising. We've got a large uh, Facebook group with about 10, 11,000 people who are pretty fairly engaged. And I've been talking a lot about you being on the show. And there's some huge excitement brewing. You've got the people from the Ancestral Health, Keto, Paleo community who are stoked that I'm going to be having you on the show. And then you've got, you know, a lot of the hardcore lifters and bodybuilders and, who are coming across we're like uh well i don't know who this guy is but it sounds really freaking interesting since you seem to be so excited about it so i think they're going to be pretty engaged too so you kind of have this cool you know blending of two people here and that's what this whole thing has always been for me ketogenic bodybuilding it's really just a hybrid approach combining what i've found to be some of the best elements of both philosophies and i kind of mashed it together to be able to use that to not only help my clients But to help myself be a competitive bodybuilder again, because that was my whole thing throughout the entire 90s decade was I was heavily steeped in the hardcore bodybuilding world and also as a coach and a trainer and all these things and then my evolution through the paleo diet because of you and that changed my life because I had I know you've and I want you to talk briefly about your experience with ulcerative colitis and that's one hell of a story I just had massive inflammation issues. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I went to my physician and he told me essentially that I was probably making it up and it was in my head because he could find nothing wrong with me. That's when I started diving down the rabbit holes. I cashed in some AOL internet minutes and stumbled onto a lot of your work. And then when I went full paleo, my joint inflammation, joint distress probably subsided by 80% within the first 60 days. And it was a huge revelation for me. So all these years later went down the keto rabbit hole. Uh, I believe I did that wrong. Uh, I just listened to, you know, the conventional, you know, orthodox keto people out there that told me I need to put butter in my coffee and all that kind of shit. And that just didn't seem to work for me. So I made some adjustments to that. And when I, when it really dawned on me that keto was really, you know, it was more about low carb than it was high fat. And you have really had mm-hmm. to turn the, turn the knobs on it based on the individual. That's when it clicked for me. And then it all ultimately worked really well for me. But uh, so that that's where I come through the whole thing. But uh, I've come out on the other side, and it's been very successful for me and my clients. But throughout this entire journey, I've I've followed you, and anytime I was sort of curious about something, I'd always you know listen to something that you were doing to, for to get a little bit of validation from where I was. But um, what I want to talk about before we dive into the most pressing topics that the people you know that follow what I do are going to want to know from you. Can you explain a little bit for those who don't know the story of your issues with your health in the late 90s and your research and how this all came to be?
1: Sure, sure. And just as a, a little bit of background, I, I was a lifter at one time. I still. Dabble, but I was a, a teenage uh, California state powerlifting champion. Oh, I was I, gonna get to
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I,
1: at, at a 181s, so I had a 565 squat and deadlift and a 345 bench, which was pretty good. Pretty good. And, oh, and hell yeah. Uh, just, yeah. just wearing a Inzer lever belt, which I still own. No, no belt suit or, or no <laughs> no wraps, no, no polymimelic alloy, uh, you know, squat suit or anything like this was in. 1990, 1991. So it was, oh, a, wow. it was a good good hump back. But I've um, always been interested in health and human performance. Both my parents were pretty ill. My my mom had a host of autoimmune-related issues that we kind of figured out later. Uh, both parents were type 2 diabetics. Uh, I, upon discovery of a low-carb diet, which I'll get to in a minute, um, figured out that I don't do super well with a, a lot of carbs, like some people clearly do wonderfully with that. But I, I think both genetic and epigenetic, uh, considerations, like, uh, I was on antibiotics for acne, tetracycline between the ages of, uh, 13 and 21. So I had like wow. nearly, a, a, you know, a decade of, uh, unbroken antibiotic use in addition to I don't know how many like sinus infections and strep throat and this and that. So a variety of reasons that I I think I probably have gut issues, um, some autoimmune stuff, uh, some, uh, you know, poor glycemic control. But it was uh, around 1998 that I guess around 97 to 98 that uh, the my health crisis kind of hit a uh, a high note, I'm about 165, 170 pounds right now. I'm five foot nine. Um, my ulcerative colitis was so bad that I was down to about 125, 130 pounds. So if you imagine 50, I'm not a big guy, but if you imagine 50 pounds less of me, that that's the the state that I was in. Wow. And um, I was eating a, a high carb, low fat, vegan type diet, which I, I think will work for some people. It was disastrously terrible for me. And I was in a graduate program and my vitamin D levels, which I checked a few years later were like 12. I mean, wow. it was, it, it was just like every single thing you could imagine. I, I was doing wrong, was broken, was suboptimal, um, super high stress, super poor sleep. Um, and, and I think that the, uh, the, had I been well-rested, low stress living in Costa Rica or Arizona, like the, the diet wouldn't have been as negatively impactful, but I, I was, um, I was driving a misaligned car with the gas and the brake on. And you, you know, you can only imagine why the tires fell off and the axle broke and, you know, all this other stuff, but it was kind of a, a a long story about how this idea of a lower carb ancestral type diet got on my radar. And I, I, I won't, drive us off a cliff with that. But this, this idea of a paleo diet got on my, my mind. Um, when I started looking at all the the challenges that I had gut and autoimmune related and the stuff that my mother was dealing with. So it was 1998. I put into a, a new search engine called Google, this term paleolithic diet. And there was a little bit of stuff. There was some stuff from a guy, Lauren Cordain, yep, the other yep. guy, Arthur Devaney. And yep. what was intriguing is that they, they described uh, 80% of what they talked about was potentially gut and autoimmune related issues because of these Neolithic foods, and clearly it doesn't cause this problem in everybody, but what if, um, the people that does cause the problem, but what, what if there was, was maybe the underlying mechanism or at least a driver. So I was sick enough that, uh, you know, anything seemed reasonable at that point. And so I, I, uh, looked around for my best iteration of what a low carb type diet would, would look like. And it, interestingly, a, uh, an Atkins book was kind of my, my entry mm-hmm. into yep. paleo ancestral eating. And it was really fascinating reading the Atkins book because it talked a ton about gut and autoimmune issues. It wasn't just about losing weight on a low carb diet. Like there was all this other kind of interesting health stuff that, that Atkins had uh, at least talked about, if not documented, but it was life-saving for me like it was really miraculous uh uh the the transformation was immediate my sleep started improving i started gaining some weight back um uh heart rate variability and stuff like that was two 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 and a half decades in the future but you know I, right, uh, right. looking back like all those parameters like the allostatic load started improving and for the first time in my life i could go 6 8 10 hours between eating and not just be a completely melted down, you know, puddle of goo. Uh, not that I did that frequently that, you know, I would go that long without eating, but I could. Whereas mm-hmm. before that, like if I didn't eat every hour and a half or two hours, like it was a meltdown McGillicuddy, you know, just, just waiting to, to happen. So I feel like it became much more resilient. Um, uh, fixed a lot of the problems I had. I, I w- at that time I was in, Q to either do a MD track or a PhD track, possibly an MD PhD track. And I decided I didn't want to do either of those. Like this, this stuff was so kind of profound and earth shaking for me that I I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, but I, I knew conventional medicine wasn't it. And it was right around this time that I found this weird workout online called CrossFit that I started doing with a buddy of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. And within about four months, we had 15 or so people training with us, we had converted his garage into a, into a gym. And I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit and said, Hey, you know, we, we, uh, Dave and I want to open the gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they were like, yes, go be achieve. And so that was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, CrossFit North. And then I had a chance to move back down to Chico, California, not long after that, and opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym, CrossFit NorCal, NorCal, Strength and conditioning, right. and the the cool thing about all that stuff is, um, I I was working for CrossFit. I was traveling around the world. I was running our our brick and mortar gym, but it just allowed me to work with a ton of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, uh, professional athletes, military, but the the folks that I really like my my um, bullseye of folks that I really felt like I could help a lot. Were people like me, folks with complex autoimmune and gut issues, who had a uh, some metabolic syndrome thrown in for for good measure, and they had typically run the the gauntlet of conventional medicine, and the doctors would frequently say, "We don't really know what's going on with you." We don't, we, you know. There, there's this whole weird world in between allergy and in between autoimmunity with regards to immune response, where Pete and we're now looking at it as. uh, mast cell activation syndrome and some different things like we're starting to put some names on it but back then you know the idea of intestinal permeability in the early 2000s it was still complete quackery like the idea that the the gut microbiome was this super important characteristic of our our health was quackery nobody nobody talked about this stuff if they did talk about it they were they were basically booted out of uh academia and whatnot but um this all allowed me a, a laboratory to work with a lot of people and I was able to kind of find my my folks which I I've worked with a lot of different folks and always found it interesting but the the kind of chubby you know metabolic syndrome with some gut and autoimmune issues those are those are my people because that that is me at the end of the day that is the process that I've had to learn to deal with and I I have to say I've probably been the most complex challenging you know, client to ever deal with. And that's part of what has kept me in the the fight because I, I still, you know, to this day, um, struggle to pull a little more wattage out of my, my diet and nutrition and, and, uh, improve my health. And I guess kind of the final iteration of that is I've kind of morphed into uh, pretty close to carnivore. I do some fruit here and there, but I've found that uh, a green salad is not my friend, maybe somebody <laughs> else's friend, but like it, it is just not my friend digestively. Uh, I've figured out that dairy is a a major inflammatory yep. component for me. I, I can do okay with some butter and sour cream occasionally, but like cheese, I just can't do. And it can be raw and milked by the Dalai Lama and, you know, uh, uh, fermented with the, the tears of, you know monks and everything. And it, it just doesn't matter. Like, uh, uh, dairy is a pretty inflammatory food for me. I, I had, a, a couple of months ago, a pretty severe autoimmune, um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis flare that, um, was scary because I couldn't use my hand. It was mm. so bad. So couldn't type, couldn't button my pants. Um, you know, and now after pulling a bunch of stuff out of the, out of the mix, like I, I couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't do a ton of stuff with it. And so in a a month and a half of, of dietary tinkering, I've, I've got my hand back and, you know, my blood work looks better because I had some high inflammatory markers. My, uh, ANAs, anti-nuclear antibodies were, were well within that like rheumatoid arthritis realm. And I've been able to, to push that back. So again, I know that the bulk of the folks that you work with are very performance oriented and, um, I'm always looking towards performance but my main thing has basically been I don't want to die. <laughs> I want to I want to stay in the fight as long as I can. My wife's mother right. died from rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 50. I just turned 50 uh, 2 months ago. So that has been my main orientation uh stay alive, be as healthy as I can and then you know the the performance side I my main activity is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then doing strength training to support Jiu-Jitsu and sure. and so that's kind of kind of where i am yeah
0: well yeah you're uh i mean that your thing is your the way you've helped so many metabolically broken people over the years and that that has become your gift to this industry but don't sell yourself, yourself short I, you know i've mentioned to a lot of people the guy's a badass you know he's a powerlifting champion uh crossfitter and you know that's no easy feat brazilian jiu jitsu we actually have a jiu jitsu school um below our gym here And, uh, you know, those guys are rolling five days a week and I know how physically demanding that can be and the performance characteristics of that, you know, is is very challenging. So the good thing about having you on is we can we can go down these rabbit holes about performance and nutrition and uh, you're still speaking the same language. And a lot of the people that come into my world, they want to train hard. They want to continue to try to, you know, build muscle and and thwart sarcopenia and all these things. And, uh, you know, they have these metabolic issues as well that they think are preventing them. So they find a nutrition protocol that seems to lend to them being kind of okay in the gym and being able to perform, but then to kind of turn the knobs on this thing and make this kind of nutrition protocol work for that high performing gym person, that gym woman, that gym man, that jujitsu, you know, practitioner and all these things. I mean, it, it can be quite a nuanced thing. So to be able to break down some of that and uh, get some feedback from you from your you know, deep ba- background, and this is going to be invaluable. So um, but uh, so before we get to that, uh, because I, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, there isn't a day that goes by in our ketogenic bodybuilding Facebook group. We got about 10 or 11,000 members, and, but it's not a huge group, but it's big enough. But the cool thing about these people is they're very, very engaged. They're mm-hmm. very active in the group. It's not the type of people that just join the group and never get involved. I mean, there's always shit going on. And every day, either myself or one of the admins of the group are recommending electrolytes, magnesium, potassium, sodium to these people because they're having issues with their performance, making that adjustment into a lower carb or ketogenic or you know primal nutrition protocol. So I wanna get your input about uh, some of the, Complex interplay of how that works and why it's so important in performance uh, in the gym, out on the road, in a CrossFit box, or whatever you're engaged in on you know rolling, doing jujitsu. Can you kind of explain and break down why that's so critical?
1: Yeah, you know it, it, it. Clearly, it's self-serving for the guy who's got an electrolyte company to tell you why electrolytes are so important. But well, that, l- that, let that me that stop is. you right there. Let me stop
0: you right there because uh, you know. I want to say right now, I kind of know, knowing you as long, not knowing you, but following you as long as I have, you've always been that self-deprecating, honest, forthright, transparent, tell it like it is. You evolve. You, there's always been this no bullshit, truthful thing about you. And I just think that's your one of your appeal. Thank you. And I have to believe, and you haven't told me this, but I've had to believe that you have started this company because you saw a real need for it in the marketplace for people like me and people like you and people out in the tra- the training landscape. Is that not correct?
1: It, it is. And I mean, it started off as a, uh, we really recognized that folks were super deficient in electrolytes in general, sodium in particular. And we spun up this free downloadable guide, like how to make your own keto aid is, is what we called it it's like this much table salt this much no salt which is potassium right some magnesium citrate lemon juice stevia shake it up and go and uh we put that out and within like 6 months we had a half million downloads of it wow and and so um we knew that there was a huge importance there because and people started saying oh man all these issues i've had the low energy the the libido, the recovery, the sleep, the getting a pump, having that neuro drive to like really get after a hard workout, these things have largely resolved. And it's because I've been doing this this keto weight stuff. Gee, wouldn't it be great if you guys made a product? And so we've, we've continued to offer the free downloadable guide. So this is kind of what makes me feel better about it. It's like make your own, buy ours. The only magic about Element is just that it tastes good and it's convenient, like there, there's yeah. no, magic salt to it or anything like that. But, um, but you know, the, I was, I've struggled to think about why are electrolytes important? And I, I started thinking about like, what are the most tightly regulated physiological systems in the body? Like what are the things that the body just is non-negotiable and controlling and uh, arguably pH and electrolytes are about the most tightly regulated. And if your pH goes up or down by too much, and, and not that much, you will feel horrible and right. or you will die. You will die. The same, yeah. you, the same thing with electrolytes. And like when you look at how much blood sugar can go up or down before you really have, you know, wheels fall off the wagon type stuff. It's remarkable how much latitude there is there. And it's really not that much. You know, you could you could get somebody hypoglycemic and kill them without a, a ton of effort or or hyperglycemic can cause a lot of damage to the to the person. But um, pH and electrolytes are pretty tightly regulated if, uh, you know, every year there are folks who do particularly endurance athletics, uh, marathon, triathlons, the longer the time index, usually the worse this is, where they just drink water and then they exercise and they sweat. And when we sweat, we almost exclusively lose sodium. We lose virtually no potassium. And they end up in this situation of, of hyponatremia, of low sodium, mm-hmm. and that that is worsened by the consumption of, of water. And people die from that. So, like it, it, it's a you know, there's this whole spectrum of suboptimal performance that goes all the way up to death by by getting this thing wrong. And every year, there's a non-trivial number of people who end up dying from hyponatremia, from low low sodium either the sodium is too low or they're consuming too much water relative to the sodium that they're, they're taking in. But when we consider what electrolytes do, particularly sodium, potassium, every single muscle contraction, every thought we have, every nerve impulse is driven by sodium, potassium pumps. This is what action potentials are generated by. And and so if we are off in the amounts and ratios of sodium potassium in our body, that's going to be suboptimal. And it doesn't mean that you die immediately, but there's this whole spectrum again, of going from kind of optimized performance or cognition or neurological drive, even just the, the, uh, uh, preloading of the heart. Like if we have proper fluid volume, you know, the way that the heart is really efficient is when it is loaded with, with, um, with blood under exercise parameters, it's like a uh, it's like a trampoline. It preloads, it stretches, and there's an elastic characteristic to the heart that then snaps it back, and you you actually get a more efficient heartbeat. A too low of blood volume due to um, uh, uh, inadequate sodium will make that worse too much of that will make it worse too and this is hypertension and it you know it's part of the reason why we get atherosclerotic plaqueing like that's probably a major factor in that so you know just adequate electrolytes in particular sodium they just underlie every single feature of performance you know from neurological activation muscle contraction uh cognitive function uh Proper cardiorespiratory activity, part of that cardiorespiratory activity is getting a pump, you know, getting a nitric oxide release and getting a pump and and everything that's kind of uh, favorably associated with that and, and, uh, you know, uh, training adaptations, Um, the backside of that recovery. So like heart rate variability, allostatic load, recovery from training. All of that is improved when we have more optimized uh, sodium intake. And it's kind of cool. The um, Huberman Lab podcast just had a a whole episode devoted to uh, sodium and and, um, electrolytes in general. And it's really eye-opening how shockingly important adequate sodium is in particular. Uh, We have seen this with... um, you know particularly in the lower carb scene but this this applies to athletes across the board but uh heart rate variability scores dramatically improving like being the most profound improvement in HRV and therefore improved sleep and re- improved recovery is getting adequate sodium like better than massage better than meditation like I, all these things are great and clearly are really important but when you think about the mechanisms of inadequate sodium and the effects it has on cortisol, epinephrine, uh, uh, just sympathetic nervous tone, um, again blood volume, all this other stuff. Like it, it, it really is a just a ground floor, profoundly important piece to to get right. And the really cool thing about it is if you're a little bit off and you, you swig some down, like even pickle juice, or like you, you grab, uh, you know, an ounce and a half of salami, which is a salty meat. And you have that, and then you sip on a little bit of water. If you were feeling a little bit off, you're a little bit flat and lethargic and just not feeling good. It only takes about six to eight minutes for that sodium to make its way into your body. And if you were deficient, then you're, you're really going to start feeling better. So there's this non trivial and unavoidable improvement in just the way that you feel. And and so that has honestly been one of the the boons for us with regards to element is folks will, they're like, oh, I'm not feeling very good. Okay. We'll give this thing a shot. And then eight or 10 minutes later, they're like, Oh wow, I really feel good. Or the same deal. Go drink some pickle juice, like do a, a half a cup of pickle juice or eat a, a dozen olives or, or do an ounce and a half of salami, like do, do uh, some salty food. But properly addressing that sodium just ends up going everything from like neurological function, cardiac output, neural drive, HRV score, you know, like uh, uh gastric emptying so that you're getting all the nutrients out of your guts that you want to do like it, it really because it underlies all processes in the body having that optimized it ends up improving pretty much everything. And there's a huge spectrum of um declining performance that one can experience on the road to being underfueled with with electrolytes and this is where folks will be tired lethargic foggy headed on the road to getting to a stage of say like cramping like what by the time somebody is cramping due to say hyponatremia like uh they, they've had at least minutes, possibly hours of suboptimal performance because it, it takes a, a decent amount of time to get to a spot where an individual is cramping from it, inadequate electrolyte intake. So it's kind of important is what you're saying. It's super important. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's honestly easier to address than what a lot of people think. It, it's just... Um, you don't always prioritize drinking some pickle juice or eating that salami and stuff like that. And within, you know, physique circles, uh, there are absolutely times where one wants to be very fastidious about sodium intake and like, you know, subcutaneous uh, uh, water storage and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But there's also a tendency to, to unfortunately uniformly assume that lower sodium is going to be better because of that water retention. Oftentimes it's, it's beneficial for- Right, um, right making one look more vascular and actually leaner. And Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, yeah. There was a trend,
0: you know, it's all through the nineties of reducing sodium, sodium's the enemy to the physique competition community. And just in the past four or five years, there's been a huge swell of prep coaches and trainers and coaches saying, whoa, wait a second, this is actually dangerous. The benefit doesn't even come close to outweighing the risk. And, you know, oftentimes because of that dogma that's associated with it, Competitors just doing local shows will come to me and say, am I supposed to restrict sodium? Am I supposed to do this water manipulation thing? I'm like, no, we are well past that. And the potential of getting the slight, slight uh, benefit from it is uh, not going to outweigh the risk that's associated with it. And in fact, the interplay of sodium with the water in your system and getting that pump and having that striated look is actually a benefit right and most prep coaches now have have pulled away from uh restricting any sodium or doing that water manipulation thing i don't do it and i've you know walked in at 4% body fat and completely peeled not manipulating water not manipulating sodium and i do it with the people that i train as well and even top level, like Olympia caliber coaches are even pulling back. They're getting rid of the diuretic use. Thank God, because it's so dangerous. So you're starting to see, you know, the education in in that realm uh, increase. And it's, it's good to see because that's a dangerous thing. And oftentimes when a physique competitor at the highest levels, you know, you hear it every once in a while, one passes out backstage and freaking dies. It usually has to do with diuretic use right. and, and right. L- losing that sodium. And, uh, so it's you know I want people to hear this, but uh, and we've always heard in the low carb paleo you know keto community that if you are on a lower carb diet, that it's even more important and you need to take in more sodium. Is that true? And how much more? What what are we looking at as a general dosage guideline for most people?
1: Yeah, it, it definitely is true. And the the dosing is maybe the most difficult question to answer because it has to do with output. I mean, essentially it, it, it's output size, heat, humidity, but it, it's, um, something that got lost in the, uh, the, the pop culture treatment of low carb diets. And I'm as guilty of this as, as anybody, because in my, my two previous books that really focus on diet, I mentioned that I wasn't afraid of sodium, that I didn't feel like it was a primary driver as say like hyper. Hypertension and high blood pressure and whatnot, but I also didn't give it its due credit either. Like I I could have, uh, I could have saved myself two decades of of suffering, you know. Had I had I got this right, and if somebody is placed on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, say for like epilepsy, or if somebody's placed on a medically supervised fast the dietician and the doctors make sure that that individual gets at least five grams of sodium a day and some potassium and some magnesium that's unheard of generally for, and you know, our, 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 um, our medical recommendations for dietary sodium intake are fewer than two grams of sodium per day. Is it, really you know, two? and it, yeah, wow. it, it, it's two or lower, um, which there's absolutely no science to support that. It, it, it's actually quite the the contrary, like all cause, Mortality tends to be lowest at about five grams per day of, of intake. So say
0: isn't it? it's like five to seven is a yeah. general starting guideline for most. It's a fantastic it's kind of an umbrella place. kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay. And
1: you know, within physique athletes, it, it's a little harder for me to, to pin down what it's hard for me to pin down an exact number in general for folks. And, and the reason why is that large athlete versus small athlete, male versus female Males sweat in a different way than women do. Uh, men tend to um, have more like sweat droplets, which are less cooling and tend to carry more sodium out. And so, uh, uh, you know, female sweat needs may be, you know, different with regards to sodium repletion relative to, to men, um, to heat, humidity. So like the American Council of Sports Medicine recognizes that athletes training in hot, humid environments and or at high motor output need somewhere between seven and 10 grams of sodium. Per right. Day. And this is ACSM guidelines. This is already assuming that people are eating all the carbs because, <laughs> it, you know, like when you do, if you take an NSCA, like CSCS or like a right, certified right. personal trainer thing. All the nutrition questions are basically whatever the most carbs are, that's it. Like that's the answer, you know? So they're already a high carb athlete. Higher carb folks tend to retain more sodium. And even in that situation, the ACSM is recommending like 7 to 10 grams of sodium for for these high motor athletes, heat, humid, all that type of stuff. Um, A low carb athlete, uh, we tend to have lower insulin levels. Lower insulin leads to lower aldosterone. Aldosterone right. is a primary renal hormone that causes us to retain sodium. This is part of that whole story of the nature of fasting, the tendency to lose sodium while fasting or low carb. So low carb athletes might double that need. And mm-hmm. so the, the book ending that I've seen is, it, it. this is just kind of across the board, but particularly if folks are on the lower carb or just minimally processed food, I think five grams of sodium is a really good place to start with people. And it's, it's critical to mention that sodium in table salt, your table salt is only 40% sodium. It's 60% chloride, right? So at five grams of sodium is more than 10 grams of table salt, which is like 10, 10 teaspoons. So it's a lot, you know, over the, over the course of a day, it's a lot. And, um, you know, just as maybe a a uh, a benchmark for people, we've done some work with an, uh NHL athletes. And these guys, these these are pretty big dudes, or 210, yeah. Should, you yeah. know, 215 pounds, not giant, but a, a pretty big dudes, pretty athletic. Um, because even though they're playing on ice, they've got all this gear on. It's a very hot sport, it's kind of like jujitsu, where these guys just sweat a lot. It's a very active, very um, you know, warm sport the these guys will lose 10 pounds mm-hmm. of water in a hard game or training session and 10 grams of sodium in a, a hard session. Wow. Now their dietitians are telling them to consume two grams of sodium. <laughs> they're burning 10 grams. And so like a basic economics on this thing, like if they follow the dietary recommendations that, that are generally being pushed towards us, they're eight grams down and then what happens there is they start pulling sodium out of their bones which also pulls out calcium and is also a stress. And then their HRV goes to shit and their recovery is terrible and they can't sleep. This is where all this stuff comes together. So I I really wish that I could look at people and just kind of magic one, say you need nine grams today and you need this and you need that. But depending on the heat, the humidity, the, uh, the level of activity, like on a day that I don't do jujitsu, I probably get five grams in that day. Mm-hmm. on a day where i do um like on saturdays there's a two-hour open mat and on that day i may end up doing 10 grams of sodium through throughout that whole that whole day as part of the training part of the recovery and and the whole nine yards so i've got a two-fold increase on what i i consume really active day versus a, a more modest day right so
0: Minimum five grams for just about anybody walking around living and breathing. And if you're obviously a hard training athlete, especially a low carb athlete, you know, more is not going to at least
1: double, but I've and occasionally I've seen people get up as high as 12 to 15 grams a day, but I've never really seen folks benefit from, from more than that. Um, and it funny enough, it was, uh, some small females that were in that 15 gram range but they were like ultra endurance athletes and they're moving right. for like 18 hours of the day and stuff like that yeah i know i get yeah. 10
0: to 12. i know i do and it's important for me mm-hmm. if, if i'm your big I guy tell though. it
1: so yeah, yeah I'm about 220
0: yeah. and then i and when i compete i'm about 206 207 and i need it and yeah and this is anecdotal and i know in the evidence-based community this is blasphemy but um you know i've always added sodium pre-workout and now i do the you know the mango chili in with my pre-workout So I've just replaced shitty table salt with this, which is way better. But I'll tell you where I really noticed it. Um, I started using the chocolate salt. Uh, I'll take one of those packets in my morning concoction. I'm at the gym at literally five in the morning training clients in the gym. And so I've started doing this organic dark roast coffee. I'll put a scoop of, uh, you know, uh, whey isolate in that. And then I'll put a packet of the chocolate. Sodium or the chocolate salt, and with that blend it up, and that's my first two clients in the morning, right and I'm here to tell you I noticed a profound difference in how I feel you know there's no more zombie mornings for me training those early morning clients I, I've been doing that for about two weeks now, and I could see a profound difference uh just the way I feel walking around the gym. I feel brighter, I feel more aware, uh, you know, better mood. I, I'm awake. Yep. I don't feel like a, a dragging zombie. So that's been huge for me. And, and at some point I want to get your favorite, uh, adult beverage recipe with this stuff too.
1: Cause I've heard about okay. it. Okay. Okay. We could do that next, but you know, it's, um, it, it's maybe worth mentioning that I think that a lot of the relative need for caffeine I think is, is mitigated with adequate sodium intake. And I'm, I'm not like in the don't drink coffee, don't, don't drink tea, but, um, I do think that, uh, folks probably overdo caffeine in general. And, and, uh, uh, and I think a lot of the, the kind of like low energy, lethargy, brain fog, fatigue that they experience is, is more of a, uh, uh, low sodium situation. So a lot of people were. I don't hear as much about the morning, but I, I don't know how many people are doing it straight out of the gate, but that frequently that like early afternoon where they're like, Oh, normally I would get like an espresso or something or have a glass tea. They do some electrolytes and they're like, they're just right as rain after that. But um, yeah. my, my favorite adult beverage right now, there's two of them that are really good. Um, one is doing just the, uh, the citrus salt, with a good quality tequila and then I'll do the juice of either one lemon or one lime, then some, some bubbly water. What I do is uh, two shots of tequila, mix the, the uh, element in that. So it dissolves in that. Then you can put bubbly water in it and it won't like, a, a, you know, a kitchen sink volcano <laughs> out of your, your glass and you still have the bubbly you just, water. You just stir
0: um, it in with a cocktail spoon.
1: Just lightly stir it in. And that, it's amazing. Like it, it really makes a phenomenal, because it's got a little stevia in it. So you've got some sweet. I oftentimes will add a little extra stevia because I, I just- Margaritas I like sweet margaritas like they I just yeah. think they're, they're pretty awesome. And my wife's um, a
0: margarita nut and she wanted me to ask you about the margarita recipes. So.
1: Okay. So yeah, so like juice of one lemon or lime, but you don't have to do that. It's kind of optional. And then a shot or two of tequila, uh one of the citrus, although the mango chili and the lemon habanero are also really good in that as well. And then the other one that I've been doing uh, is the uh, uh, uh a salty hound. It's like a greyhound, so we use the uh the, uh, grapefruit and we'll do grapefruit vodka, same, same operation, you know, the right. bubbly water, um, get it, get it dissolved in vodka, get the, it, get the, uh, the grapefruit dissolved in vodka, top it off with the bubbly water. And it's really, really good. But I, wow, man, there's, um, great. there's a bunch of good things. Like people were doing kind of black Russians with the, the chocolate salt, yeah. where they would, they would do some coffee and some Kahlua and different things and then do the, chocolate salt in there. Honestly, when we started this as a company, I thought that it would do pretty well. Like I thought that we had nailed the formulation and there was a real need kind of hidden in plain sight, but you never know when you you first get things going, but we formulated it in a way that it would work really well as a cocktail base. Mm-hmm. And so we're ready to pivot either into like, <laughs> you know, performance athletic thing or or drink mix. Either way, and now we just kind of do both. So
0: yeah, well, it's exciting. I can't wait to try it tonight for St. Patrick's Day. Nice. So nice. No Irish whiskey for me. I'm going to be doing a, a, a element margarita. So that sounds good to me. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. I, I I kind of chuckle about this way back in the day when I would listen to your original you know Paleo Solution podcast you know, you'd get all these questions, you'd feel all these questions, and they would all roll in. And you could almost turn it into a drinking game, how many times you would say vitamin D.
1: Right. And right. That,
0: that, that's where I first learned about the, the real importance of vitamin D. And I take a shitload of it now. And I, I even mega dose it, and I feel great, great when I do. Um, can you t- explain the role of vitamin D as, as a hormonal element and how it can you know, as a precursor to testosterone production, uh, can it be a performance booster? I mean, these another question people wanted to know, because I'm always talking about vitamin D, but, you know, it'd be better for you to take a, a quick deeper dive into that from somebody who has so much experience from that realm.
1: Yeah. And I mean, uh, someone like Chris Masterjohn is really like the the guru on that stuff. He He really is phenomenal with it. But I don't think that there's a cell type that doesn't have a vitamin D receptor in the body. Right. Like, I could be wrong about that, but there there are very few that that uh, do not. You know, epidemiologically, we just see these interesting relationships between um, uh, autoimmunity and low vitamin D, gut issues and low vitamin D, greater susceptibility to infectious diseases like this. COVID deal, there seemed to be this, uh, you know, almost lockstep uh, relationship between vitamin D status and and severity or relative non-severity of of, uh, the disease process to the tune that it was suggested that uh, at some point, um, you know, adequate vitamin D status either meant like zero fatality or zero hospitalization. So really, right. really interesting. The flip side is, you know, sufficiently low. It was almost guaranteed to be a, a death sentence. Um, it, it modifies mineral balance, um, you know, cholesterol synthesis, but really immune response is kind of the, where the, I would say the bulk of the really important stuff happens with vitamin D. Um, like a lot of this stuff, it, you know, when we say, mega dosing and and does it improve performance, uh, sometimes it's hard to get a benchmark on that because, and it will depend. So historically, evolutionarily, humans have gotten the bulk of their, their vitamin D from, from the sun and, uh, lighter skin folks get it, get it easier, darker skin folks that need to be out in the sun longer to get the same amount. There also may be some genetic differences that, um, darker skin folks may actually need higher vitamin D levels than, uh, some lighter skinned populations may actually be okay at comparatively lower vitamin D levels. And this is some stuff that, that Chris Masterjohn is really crackerjack at the, the different um, polymorphisms, genetic polymorphism and in, in who does what, but a, a sunny day middle latitude in the, in the summer, an individual at outside, like if they're, you know, in a pair of shorts, you know, or loincloth thinking, you know, mm-hmm. kind of paleo type deal, you can make 20 or 30,000. IU's right. of vitamin D during that time, you know? So Mega dose is kind of like, what does that mean? You know, I mean, they recommend like a thousand IUs or something a day right. or some really paltry amount. And so I I um I do think that it's a performance booster, but only up to a point. Like there's definitely a U curve with with vitamin D, but I think that the the benefits are much more profound at higher levels than what most people think. And I think that like that about 5,000 IU's per day is, is pretty legit as a, as a starter. And again, bigger guy, you know, different ethnicity may, may, uh, may require double that, maybe even triple that, or, or at least uh, in some circumstances, some people also seem to benefit from, instead of taking vitamin D daily, like if you have to supplement it, Doing like a hundred thousand IUs in a single dose seems right. to benefit some some people. So you would do that like once a week or or what have you, but it's um seems to mitigate inflammation. Um, you know, it it runs all the and if we're if we're favorably affecting inflammation from that like physique competitor perspective, if you're inflamed. Some of your recovery capacity is always allocated to dealing with the, the consequences of inflammation. And this is, I think, some of the benefit that we see from just cleaning up a, one's diet in general with regards to physique. If your gut is inflamed, if you have systemic inflammation some of your recovery capacity that could be allocated to getting stronger and getting bigger is allocated to just dealing with systemic inflammation or gut inflammation. So if we mitigate inflammation, then I, I, it makes sense that we have more resources to allocate to recovering from training. So I, I think that that's a a really strong, you know, case to be made for, uh, for, you know, making sure that vitamin D status is topped off. I, I do think that, um, I think the company is Everly Well. You can, you can order like a home blood test where you prick your finger and you do some some blood spots on a card and you mail it in and they will give you a, a pretty accurate vitamin D test. It's not cheap. Like a... a Usually getting vitamin D checked is somewhere between like 75 and 150 bucks, no matter what you do. But I think getting a benchmark on it, maybe checking it every year and a half, two years, something like that is pretty smart, just so sure. that you know that you're you're on point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've been told I'm insane for winter months taking 20 000 to 30,000 IUs. And then, you know, in the summertime, I I go out of my way to be out in direct sunlight for right. 30, 40, 45 minutes a day and I do great with that. So you know, I'm just trying to create some awareness with the people that are curious about, you know, the benefits of vitamin D and you don't have to worry about going beyond what the FDA yeah, recommends because people are like, you, Oh, it can't, my doctor said it can get toxic and it's going to kill me at those levels. You know, what's the deal. So
1: I just it, wanted to it, hear it from you. It's very difficult to get vitamin D toxicity. And this was extrapolated from vitamin A toxicity, which vitamin A legitimately, you, you can end up in a, a toxic Situation, But vitamin D is interesting in that. Um, and I think it's because we historically have um, gotten the bulk of our vitamin D from from sunlight. And so there are mechanisms where vitamin D can get taken offline. So if you over consume vitamin D or over manufacture vitamin D, it will actually down regulate it. So even though it is a fat soluble hormone, it's not the same as vitamin A where we don't have A really good disposal process for it, like vitamin A, you can you can end up in a toxicity situation pretty easily. And ironically, one of the things that mitigates vitamin A toxicity is adequate.
0: Okay, that's all I needed to know. So everybody heard that. Now you know you're not going to die if you take a little more and get your ass out in the sun. Um, Right. Something that I think we both can relate to, you know. From the bodybuilding world, and I say bodybuilding is sort of a a blanket term because I know that 99% of the people that, that follow what I do are not competitive bodybuilders, but they consider themselves bodybuilders because they're trying to build the best genetic example of them they can possibly be. And sure, a lot of what we do is driven by, you know, aesthetic goals. Uh, but then we also are concerned about being healthy and, and mitigating a lot of the uh, effects of a of a poor diet or an, a very inflammatory diet. But then you get the people from the uh, from that hard training world that are just coming into this, and this goes into one of the most popular questions asked of me in our group and from clients: is uh, you know, can you build muscle on a low carb or you know, ketogenic style diet? And I say obviously yes, and we both know this is true. Uh, but I also have, you know a couple of caveats to that. i I do use some carbohydrates to strategically mm-hmm. within what I do. And I've heard you say, you know, sometimes throwing 50 to 75 grams of carbs at it you know might do some people some some g- real good. But you know the keto zealots, the the Orthodox keto, you know, crazy kooks out there, just rain down on me every time I bring the C word up, like I'm, you know, doing some disservice to the cause and I'm, you know, going to be thrown out of the orthodoxy, but uh, you know, I'll tell people, you know, I I take in, you know, sometimes 30 grams of carbohydrates, you know, pre-workout and it's from a fast absorbing source, like a cream of rice or even like a cyclic dextrin powder. And I know that the way that I train, I'm going to burn through that glycogen fairly quickly and I'm going to dispose of it and utilize it for what I want to use it for, for the gym for performance in the gym and i also remind people that and correct me if i'm wrong but taking in that carbohydrate around my workout is also going to be protein sparing right. meaning that it's i'm going to give you know the amino acids the opportunity to do what they do without interrupting that and letting the carbohydrates be you know the driver of that energy and performance in the gym and then it's gone and there's no detrimental effects from that so when i talk about taking in carbohydrates around workouts some of the uh, keto orthodoxy just want to you know, draw and quarter me over that. But uh, I also tell them that, uh, you know, there's this insulin hypothesis out there where people lose their minds if you talk about any insulin secretion whatsoever. And I tell them that that's terribly misguided, that it's not about how much or how little, but it's the precise amount required in order to produce an anabolic effect. And it doesn't have to be a lot. And I think I've even heard you say that you might do just like a small apple or something like that before you do jujitsu or you train. So for the people that come into this that are skeptical and you get some of the hardcore bodybuilding type guys that are like, Oh yeah, I tried that keto shit. It didn't work. It was a total train wreck. And that's because unfortunately the keto orthodoxy, the powers that be like, you know, the people out in the mainstream, they tell us that it has to be, you know, 70% fat and 25% protein, 5% carb and you know, no fucking wonder they don't, they're not getting the same effect when they get rid of their chicken and rice every two hours and they start, you know, putting butter in their coffee and, you know, doing all this shit. But right. then I tell them, you know, keto is not about high fat, it's about low carb and you can, you know, get the same effects. So, you know, we're very protein driven with a more moderate fat approach based around energy output, and what, what you need without spilling over and then using carbohydrates as a, specific tool in the toolbox to, you know, drive workouts and performance, and then you just leave them alone. So how do you feel about that to the people that say, oh, if if you do these low carb diets, you you can't build muscle or the performance is going to wane. and it's just not going to work long term. Am I off base by using carbohydrates specifically? I mean, I know I'm not, but I just want to hear it from you and what your take is and all
1: that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that out in the broad spectrum of people, there almost certainly will be some folks for whom even a, a well-formulated adequate protein, appropriate electrolyte ketogenic diet is going to be suboptimal. Like I, I would be shocked if there wasn't somebody that it's like, sure. we clone them and we run them, you know, one of them, uh, you know, 40% carbs, one of them, uh, uh, 8% carbs. And like the, they just do better on the 40%. Percent carbs, their gut uh, uh, microbiome, their genetics—like everything works better with that. But it beyond that, like it, there's some interesting things. Even folks that are are in more of a classic like uh, three to one, four to one ketogenic diet for like epilepsy, they end up with glycogen levels about where folks who eat carbohydrate and end up after about a month, month and a half of keto adaptation. So. That ends up not being as limiting a thing, but to your, to your point, I I think that the higher protein intake, like the a great way to destroy someone's physical performance to put them on an epilepsy flavor of a ketogenic diet. Like it, 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 your performance is going to suck might work pretty well for endurance athletics, but for power athletics, I I think that that's going to be a, kind of a, a disaster. I think that a ton of the problems that folks experience is inadequate electrolytes in those stories. So there's at least a 30-day period of adaptation just on the energy substrate level so that you're, you're turning ketones over, you're using uh, free fatty acids as more of a primary fuel source. So are you willing to write out a month, month and a half of you know not maybe feeling as good on that, that lower carb approach? And then I think another question in this thing, and this, this kind of speaks to what you were talking about with like the low carb jihadis Keto got so popular that we forgot that there's this whole spectrum of just kind of lower carb. You know, there are folks that were eating 800 grams of carbs a day and they kind of, maybe it was kind of successful, but they maybe felt like shit. They had gut gut issues. They had a, you know, hypoglycemic ups and downs. And then they find that, man, if I just do 200 grams of carbs a day, I have super good performance. I I check my ketones and I'm mildly in ketosis. I'm not like at a 1.5, maybe at a 0.4 to a 0.5 or something because of physical activity and leanness and all this stuff. So there's this whole spectrum in between of just kind of like moderate to low carb that may be really appropriate, maybe a good benefit. And then we have that targeted ketogenic approach, which is what you talked about, where the person may be pretty low carb most of the time. And then they do something like a, uh, uh, you know, polydextrose or a, a, you know, straight granulated dextrose or maybe a piece of fruit immediately before a workout, and somewhere between like fifteen and forty grams of of carbs per hour, depending on you know volume and intensity of activity. Uh, that has been a complete game changer for me with jujitsu. Like the the electrolytes were a big deal, and then really being fastidious about getting more carbs, right? Immediate to Mm -hmm. carry workout, you know, within my, my open rolling and jujitsu has been a huge deal. And that's honestly kind of perplexing because the studies again, suggest that my muscle glycogen is probably topped off. So I'm, you know, or at least reasonably topped off. So why is that a problem? I think that some of it is the central governor And when we start doing hard physical activity and we're in a low carb environment, blood sugar does drop. And although ketones can fill a gap there, the brain really doesn't like changes in like energy status. And I think that the central governor part of the brain that regulates energy access and kind of perceived energy levels and fatigue, if it logs a serious drop in blood glucose levels, even while keto adapted the brain will put the brakes on our physical activity. We won't feel as strong. We won't have kind of as much, you know, piss and vinegar to get after something. So I think, and again, you know, to the evidence-based crowd, I don't have a randomized control trial on this. I'm being speculative, but it, it you know, I think it the, a mechanism, it makes sense here. I think the reason why the peri-workout carbs work isn't necessarily to top off muscle glycogen it's telling the central governor part of the brain, we're okay, we have enough energy that we can get after it. And it's not going to get us into a deep hole or an energy deficit. Like we can, we've got this and we right. can, we can kind of train aggressively. So I think it's actually a neuroregulation of, of energy production kind of story that's, that's going on there. Because again, like the, um, the muscle biopsies looking at uh, uh, glycogen status in keto adapted individuals, they're like 90% of what somebody is when they're, they're eating carbs all the time. Sure. It takes about a month, month and a half for them to get there. So it's kind of like, well, what's, you know, what all's going on there? So, uh, there've been some, some okay studies looking at both trained and, and reasonably untrained people doing lower carb diets. And we seem to get the same approximate degree of protein accretion and whatnot. I do think that, um, how much neurological drive people have to be able to get in the gym and get after it and you know get some intensity uh under their belt um that can be variable on a low-carb diet but i think that we have ways to mitigate that um really skinny uh kind of ectomorph kids maybe really hard pressed to do well on a ketogenic diet mainly because i think that um a ketogenic diet is so good at, at appetite suppression that they the kids may not eat enough. So, like I, I could see really low carb being problematic because it you, you know through uh, that skinny kid trying to eat five thousand calories a day, like it, it may just be harder and possible to get that from from mainly um, fat and protein. You know right. you're going to be hard pressed to get that. Whereas if you get some carbs in the mix, you have enough variety there that you you know you just tend to eat more. Also an interesting insight on the flip side of that for like the aging athlete, if you want to maintain good body composition, maybe eating a little bit lower carb is a, a good way to do that because sure. you tend not to overeat. Yeah.
0: Don't you think that that um, aging athletes or, or guys our age do a little bit better than than younger people? Is that because of time and training and then just adapting to the process or having that? And I hate this term now, but that metabolic flexibility, or do you, why, do you, why do you think that is that uh, and I've noticed it with my clientele that that the over 40 crowd seems to do quite a bit better than some of the younger crowd. Why do you think that is?
1: I, I think to some degree, because we actually lose carb tolerance as we get older. And so I, there are some folks out there that equate ketosis with metabolic flexibility. And I think that that's a mistake. It, right. it, it, I, I think that um, like my wife is an example of somebody who's very metabolically flexible. She if, if she eats low carb, she'll go into ketosis and she won't even notice it. And it doesn't even change her performance. Like she, she was a 13th place CrossFit games finisher a number of years ago. Um, she can eat higher carbs. She can eat lower carb. Like she, she's pretty bulletproof on that. I, I, I don't see ketosis as being a route to metabolic flexibility other than if we are losing weight and. Reversing insulin resistance, then we might on the backside of that then be able to put in more carbs. But I think that older folks, tend, even in in non Westernized uh, societies, tend to lose some amount of carbohydrate tolerance as they age. So I think that that's where we see improvements in both body composition and kind of glycemic control with relatively low. And that, again, it doesn't have to be ketosis, but if you were rocking 400 grams of carbs a day in your, your, uh, your twenties and now you're in your fifties and you notice that like 75 to 150 grams of carbs a day seems to be really good. That kind of makes sense, you know, and and it's not just that physical activity may be less. It's that legitimately at like a, a mitochondrial level, like we we are just doing better with um, fat as a primary fuel source versus carbs for, for the most part.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So you can build muscle on a low carb diet.
1: For sure. For sure. Yeah. I know. I kind of, kind of skirted around that and there's some decent studies that show that. And, and again, I think that there's going to be an adaptation period to getting used to a low carb diet. We need to be on point with our electrolytes. Um, we need to then be clear about like how we're defining our terms. Like maybe your version of low carb diet, you went from 800 grams to 200 grams. That's still a hell of a lot lower, you know, and you may still be in ketosis, But for most of keto land, like 200 grams of carbs is a huge amount. But for, for somebody who's a hard charging athlete, that, that they, they may still be in a a fairly deep state of ketosis all the time, even at 200 grams of carbs to say nothing of like, you know, punctuated, uh, peri-workout carbs and, and peri-workout nutrition and whatnot.
0: Well, yeah. And, and I've been, you know, I'm 53 years old, but I've been training hard in the gym for 30 years. And I built a significant amount of muscle mass over that time. And I will be the first one to admit that I am a hyper responder. When I started training back in my early twenties, I immediately went from a guy who did absolutely nothing. Uh, I was a musician, nerd, geek, artist kind of guy, started working with a competitive bodybuilder. And it was nearly immediate that we both noticed that my body just responded to that shit. And I went I- from a h- 175 to 210 like that. And a year later, I was at, you know, 226 227, and fairly lean. So I, I get it. I'm a hyper responder. I have the genetics for that. I just look at a weight and I put on a pound of muscle. But at the same time, as I've gotten older, and I've dropped my carbohydrate, it's never really been a factor for me provided that I keep the protein high. And for mm-hmm. me, and this is also weird in the keto sphere because of with intermittent fasting, which I'm not against, it just doesn't work that great for me. For what I do, I notice that if I'm taking in protein, you know, every three or four hours to some degree, and I keep my protein levels high, and I'm getting adequate rest and recovery, then I am, I I do do very, very well at keeping the muscle that I've built, and not seeing it waste away like other people our age. So I think that, uh, that protein is the is the real driving factor that a lot of people miss in this. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely and the less frequent you eat, the more protein overall in total magnitude you're you're going to need to eat all, all other things being equal to maintain the the same kind of nitrogen balance, the same muscle right. mass. And so like if you're a, a one meal a day person, you've got to eat a monumental amount of protein right. and have some sort of an anabolic stimulus somewhere else you know, uh, uh, throughout your, your 24 hour cycle, like lifting weights at, of some kind. I, I just find like that some people do it, but I find like the, the really, um, intermittent eating one meal a day folks, um, they might be lean. They might carry a little muscle, but it's not usually super impressive levels of muscle. Um, for strength Charles Poliquin talked about this stuff uh yeah, big fan fasting uh fasting uh causes a conversion of uh type 2A, 2 a two to b motor fibers to two a it makes them endurance uh shift right. and so um he was horrified at the notion of of his uh, sprint athletes fasting he was oh, fuck no you know it's <laughs> like little little meals all all throughout the day he really yeah. was not a a big fan of um uh you know any type of even intermittent fasting for his his real power athletes so i think again it, and like i know that there's a lot of anxiety around um mTOR and growth signaling and things like cancer and all that stuff i think that the field of uh most longevity research i think is absolute bullshit where where i look at it right now like i they're comparing almost uniformly sick populations of animals and to some degree humans, comparing them th- that are overfed with populations that are underfed eating the same, eating the same shitty food, but just not eating as much of it. So clearly they're going to be healthier. What they are not doing is looking at a, a phenotypically optimized group of these organisms that are eating a species appropriate diet, living a good life, and then And then comparing that, do the same thing and calorie restrict that group, right? Like is a group of, of, uh, bodybuilding athletes who are all lean, they're all metabolically healthy. Are they going to live qualitatively longer by still continuing them on higher protein, less refined food, but calorie restricting you 30 or 40%, like, is your health and, and lifespan going to be improved? I don't think it's going to be. I think we're going to start accelerating sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass. And, and uh, uh, we're going to start undermining the health span. And I don't think there's anything to suggest that we're going to uh, qualitatively improve the, uh, the lifespan on the, the backside of that. Golden, but I'm in the minority I'm, on that. No, I am no, a, and, definitely in the minority. Well, I'm,
0: I'm right there with you. I believe that 110%. And again, it's, it's anecdotal to a degree, but I think I even heard you say in an interview, you know, you can talk about an anecdotal evidence on you want, but if you drop a hammer on your foot, it's still going to fucking hurt every single time. Right. So that, you know, um, I know for me, uh, we, we did a carnivore challenge within the group in January, which I'm totally into. I, I think it's a great thing, but I noticed for me, you know, it, it's, it's such a satiety driven way of eating. I got to the point where I just was not hungry, which was fine. And I got through the 31 day challenge and I think I lost 10 pounds But, uh, I noticed that I was flat, you know, terms, Mm -hmm. the terms that hardcore lifters use, I was very flat. I didn't feel full. I I felt like my workouts in the gym were beginning to suffer a little bit. And I noticed when I came off the the carnivore challenge, which I'm still probably about 80% carnivore anyway. But when I went back to that frequent eating cycle, you know, every three to four hours, I took in that little bit of carbohydrate pre-workout and I got back on my normal routine, you know, I was telling my workout partners and clients, I just filled right back up again in a good way, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I was vascular striated. I had fullness. I felt good. So again, it's anecdotal, but I think there's a reason why, if you look at the, 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 the bodybuilding community, there's a reason why the best of the best and at the highest level have been doing that, you know, for 65 years, because it just fucking works right? For, right for that, you know, aesthetically driven, hard, heavy lifter that's trying to just really look good naked. And I know that there's going to be a time in my life when I'm not competing anymore. And as I get older, that there'll probably be a time where I'll probably switch to more of a 90% carnivore diet and probably just eat whenever I'm fucking hungry. And I'm fine with that. But uh, for now, um, you know, and it, and it leads me to a question that I was going to, I'm just going to skip over and get to it. What is this and you kind of touched on it. What is this thing in the community about the dangers of protein? Why is everybody turning fearful of protein now? I just don't understand this new trend in in the keto sphere of protein is bad. You know, what's the deal with that? What's your
1: take on that? I mean, there, there is research that looks at, uh, you know, when it comes out of CRAN studies, calorie restriction, adequate nutrition, Mark Mattson, uh, Roy Walford. Roy Walford was this guy that uh, did the the biodome experiment trying to live to be 150 years old and uh, significant calorie restriction. And there are animal models where if they calorie restrict, if they intermittent fast, and or if they protein restrict these animals, these animals appear to live longer. But the the I I did a talk. Um, it, it's called Longevity. Are we trying too hard? And it, you can find it on the internet. And maybe you want to link to that in in the show notes because I it, it's I cover something like 150 slides in an out in a one hour talk. And I'm wow. just like and I'm talking about mTOR complex one. Regular like it's one of the most technical talks I've ever done. And I. I I sound like I did a couple of lines of Coke during, <laughs> before, during, and after this thing. Um, so I cover a lot of ground, but I, I make a case in there, and I may be wrong, but I, I make the case in there that I think that we've been comparing the wrong things. The chronically overfed state absolutely has mTOR turned on too, too strong and too often. But there's something other than the chronically overfed state and fasting or protein restriction. And that's punctuated eating and, and you know, j- just being generally healthy. And this is where um, the little bit of studies that have been done feeding animals a species-appropriate diet and calorie restriction, the animals die young. They don't live a, a normal length of life. Wild-type animals that are, are put into calorie restriction scenarios – do not live longer. And it's because laboratory animals chronically overeat lab food. So we're comparing an overfed animal that's eating itself to death with an animal that's being forced to not overeat and, and eat itself to death. And I think that that's the, the. and then interestingly, the, um, the wild type animal fed a species appropriate diet in a lab setting lives almost as long as these, these uh, longevity improvements in the calorie restricted animals, because they're not dying from infection and predation and all these types of things. So it's kind of like feed somebody a paleo diet, let them lift weights, get sun on their skin, but just don't have somebody try to murder them or have infectious disease. And it's like, Oh, they're probably going to live a really long, healthy life, you know? So um, the, the danger there or the concern is around mTOR and these growth factors that uh, promote neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer. I think it is entirely speculative that um, n- reducing protein intake is going to really be a win with regards to mitigating cancer potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, it, And the flip side of that is that we know for dead certain... Every one of us is facing the ravages of sarcopenia of losing muscle mass as we age. Like that, that is a baked-in-the-cake guaranteed deal that all of us are dealing with. Whereas the um the the uh protein restriction to avoid cancer is totally speculative. And there's there's some mechanisms that suggest maybe it it may be even counterproductive, uh, you know. It, 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 Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but and within your population, this isn't as important a thing because people are already very body composition oriented, but I see folks within the keto sphere that, um, they're asking if they should do another 72 hour fast a week or something like that. And they're not even doing three days a week of strength training, right. you know, and, and it's like, I, I think you should be doing, you know two to four days per week of strength training. And you, you find whatever cadence, you know, God forbid three meals a day, each one of them containing adequate levels of protein and maybe even a snack, you know, crazy. And it, and again, it'll be a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh driven by, by needs and, and whatnot. I just have a feeling that that is going to end up being much better from a health span and lifespan perspective, than these significant bouts of of uh, fasting, and if somebody wants to do a forty eight hour or seventy two hour fast every once in a while to just kind of turn things over, that's great. But people start going on and on about autophagy and and you know cellular turnover and everything. Lifting weights induces autophagy. Drinking coffee induces autophagy. And something that pe- nobody talks about this, and I really talk about this a lot in the in this talk that I gave. There's this thing called the Hayflick limit. Where mammalian cells, well I think eukaryotic cells broadly, but for for sure mammalian cells, they only get 50 replications before they die. Each time a cell replicates a, a little bit of the telomeres, the mm-hmm. the uh, little ends of the um, the DNA that we have, a little bit gets peeled off. And once you get to that 50 replications, the telomeres are gone and the cell tends to die. So, you don't want senescent abnormal cells kicking around. They, they cause inflammation and they can cause cancer and stuff like that. So you don't want that, but at the same time, when we fast or when organisms are fasted, there's a whole spectrum of what constitutes senescence. And when an organism is is put into a fasted state, there, some of our normal physiological processes require cells that are going through the senescence process. And we want that. You want those cells to stay around. You don't want them to go too far. You want them to step off, you know, at the appropriate time. But there have been studies where animals are fasted aggressively, intermittent fasted aggressively. Those animals die young and they die from multi-system organ failure because they are out of stem cells and everything fails all at once. And so I think that there's going to be a whole crop of people who've done super aggressive fasting and they're, you know, hopefully they live as long as they want to live. But I think that they're going to hit a point where everything just fails all at once, like a more multi-system organ failure scenario, because all of their, their stem cells have been used up because they've stimulated autophagy and, and uh, cellular turnover so much that they, they have burned through their, their stem cell pool and they're done.
0: It makes you so, wonder if some of this might be driven by the whole anti-meat vegan agenda crowd that's out there, just a little tinfoil hat moment. Do you think there's any correlation there of this kind of strange science kind of well, I mean, lending I th- to
1: that? It, I think that that you know it um it lends itself just to uh non-decentralized food systems and uh people owning our our the intellectual property of our food, like Bill Gates, you know, wants you to. Buy his pea protein backed, you know, impossible burger type, type stuff. So I, 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 um, I think that there's financial and kind of social political reasons for why you would want to demonize meat for sure.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So with that carnivore, speaking of meat and protein, uh, you mentioned that you're, you know, maybe primarily carnivore these days with a little bit of fruit, you know, there's a lot going around. You know, we have a lot of carnivores in our group, and it's always being brought up. And I always say that I'm about 85% carnivore myself. I probably only eat one vegetable matter meal a day if I'm lucky, and the rest is just meat, eggs, fish, and so on. And then I'll have a little bit of carbs around workouts. But um, is where do I want to go with this? Are you part of the community like like Paul Saladino? You know, his which I think he's great, but his whole thing is basically vegetables can kill you and right. they don't want to be eaten and they're dangerous. Um, where do you sit on that whole thing? Is that, is he overblowing that to kind of push his brand? Is there some truth to that? Is wh- where do you sit on that?
1: Uh, I really like Paul a lot. And I think he's done a lot, a lot of uh, good things for that, that scene. I like Sean Baker a lot too. And I kind of like Sean's approach to things. He's a little less hyperbolic right. about stuff. Um, we co-evolved with plants and animals, and, and uh, yeah, there are, are absolutely toxicants in plants that um, maybe are not great for us at, at, at various points, but um, I think that what we're seeing today, I think that we see a lot of benefit of people who are kind of broken, myself included, who, who benefit from like minimizing fiber and stuff like that. Like Mm -hmm. my gut just doesn't, doesn't really do that well with it. But I think that that's more a hallmark of, um, I'm an individual who's been raised in the modern era. I was on antibiotics from the age of 13 to 21 for acne. And I had, I don't know how many other, you know, that was tetracycline alone. And then I, I was on things for strep throat and this and that. And, uh, I think my inability to to eat a more om, omnivorous diet is more reflective of the damage that I've withstood over my lifetime than this is the optimized diet for all all people you know it, it's um I do think that a lot of the the methodology that are are used in traditional cultures like um soaking, fermenting, sprouting things, yogurts and kimchi's and sauerkrauts and stuff like that. Like, um, I think that those are strategies for mitigating the toxicants in plants. And I think that that's part of the reason why they're, they're used, but there's just too damn many people who live too well that that right. eat a non trivial amount of plants that like, that's gotta be the, the default mode for everybody. I see, um, I see the need for eating kind of a carnivore approach as being more reflective of potentially that the, the individual sustained some pretty good mileage or damage over over time, and that they they probably do better, you know, with that. But but that said, also I think that there's a big variation. I, I think if you just chase the nutrient density side of things, you know, it's like seafood, organ meats, red meats. Um, different herbs and spices which how much herbs and spices do you use small amounts because they're they're really concentrated and i i think that you know that's totally reasonable they have lots of antimicrobial effects to them and stuff like that um and then uh, uh fruits are are pretty high up there and then vegetables end up being a little bit lower in the nutrient density thing by and large but you know i think that that's a little bit you know, there, there's variation and on that, but if we just think about nutrient density and then the immunogenic potential of foods, you know, like gluten is problematic for a lot of people. So we are at least suspicious about that. But if we look at building a nutrient dense diet, um, with an eye towards, uh, immunogenic foods, you know, potentially, uh, foods that could cause it, it, systemic inflammatory issues, gut issues, that ends up cleaning up a lot of this stuff, and with a little bit of experimentation, you kind of figure out if you you do better with more or less of these things. Like, doesn't really require a uh, a religious doctrine to be built around any of that stuff. You know, so it goes back to for and thirty days. Just,
0: and, yeah, it goes back to individuality. Uh, yeah, yeah, just just like everything else. I mean, my yeah. wife can eat certain vegetables and 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 you know, fibrous carbohydrates that just make her blow up and feel like she has a fifty pound bag of cement in her gut or I might be able to eat the same vegetables and I get no detrimental effects at all. So I I think it's very individualized. And what I do love about Paul Saladino is his transparency and, and the way he evolved it through his own carnivore journey. And he started adding in, you know, certain tropical fruits and honey right. and things like that. And he was not afraid to step up and say, hey, this is what I do. It works for me. And, you know, I'm not gonna be part of the, you know, orthodoxy and and, and I admire that about him. And I, and I wish more people would be like that. But uh, in regard to the carnivore thing, you mentioned Sean Baker, and then we, we got Saladino and they're, you know, sort of splintered off in slightly two different directions. What is your take on getting optimal nutrition on a carnivore diet? Do you think that organ meats need to be consumed for you to be in an optimal carnivore and you know diet? Or do you think that's overplayed as well?
1: I think it's kind of overplayed. And I I base that somewhat on anecdotal experience where I've gone long tracks of doing more more Oful and and uh uh you know fiddly bits and not doing it and not really noticing a, a difference one way or the other. Um I uh I I do feel like getting in a little more seafood and like shellfish and stuff like that. Like I feel like that that's a good move for me. And part of it is just for sanity. You know, like right. I love a ribeye, but this is where um uh I love ribeye, but I don't know that I could do what Sean Baker does I where it's just like every it. fucking day <laughs> I, I, I pull out a machete and eat a, a ribeye with it. You know, um, it, it, if I had to, you know, to like manage an autoimmune condition, I, I guess I could, but it's just like, I had, uh, I had a really good, we, we have some meat that we got here locally, one from a bison ranch, another one from a, a Montana longhorn, outfit and I did a, a cube steak, like it's good yeah, steak yeah. that they chop, you know, they meat tenderize it. And I, I cooked it in some olive oil and everything, which I guess olive oil is a no, no, it should be, you know, something else, but I I ate a good helping of that. And then I had like two apples with it. Cause I, I actually got a little bit of training in today and God damn, if those apples didn't taste good, <laughs> you know, it was some local, local apples that, that we had gotten at a, a cider pressing thing early in the, in the, uh, fall and I managed to save some of these apples. God damn, they were good. Like yeah. just re- it's so sweet, you know, it's yeah. itty bitty ones, itty bitty ones, but, um, tasted amazing, really satisfying. And, uh, uh, I don't know if they're going to fucking kill me, but like it, it really, it made my life so much more enjoyable, like having those apples to, to look forward to. So it, and, I still have a host of kind of gut related issues. Like a a lot of fiber is not my friend, um, certain fruits I really don't do well with, but like apples, I seem to be okay. As long as I don't do too many, interestingly, tropical fruits, I definitely do better with, you know, I, I, I definitely seem to do better with tropical fruits. They, they seem to digest a little bit better. Um, I'll actually do some plantains and, uh, uh, fry them in some like coconut oil and stuff like that, you know, occasionally, which I I know is kind of carnivore heresy, but it's, uh, I like it. I enjoy it. My kids enjoy it. Um, it digests well. I feel pretty good on it, but yeah, I mean, I mean, to circle back again, though, I, I just don't know if that, that awful and all the fiddly bits is, is really that necessary, particularly again, if you're throwing in a little bit of fruit and a little bit of, uh, you know, nutrient dense seasonings like ginger and and basil and some stuff like that. I, I just don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I did. Uh, you know, I'm probably 95% meat, eggs, fish, but you know, we grow organic, you know, raspberries, blackberries and strawberries in our backyard. Right. And you know, when they're ripe and in season, I eat the shit out of it and that's okay with me. And uh, right. So I wonder if bringing in those little elements of fruit and that occasional this and that might offset what you're lacking by not, you know, going full tilt on a whole bunch of liver every single day. So
1: yeah, I don't know. And I mean, yeah, people like Sean Baker just don't eat liver much at all, and you know, he seems to motor along just fine. Michaela he seems Peterson to do and okay. yeah, yeah uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson, and they've tried adding in some of this other stuff, and they they don't feel as good you know, they actually go the opposite direction. So it's, um, yeah, I did the liver
0: thing. I did the liver thing for that January carnivore thing. You know, I brought in some, you know, grass-fed liver and did that and it was fine, but like yourself, I didn't notice any, you know, life changing or any major difference in how I felt or how I performed by doing that. So now it's just become an on occasion thing for me when it's available.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: So, yeah. So speaking of growing things and agriculture and all this shit sacred cow is amazing it's truly amazing and i'm recommending it to everybody that i come across the documentary is spectacular and uh i I guess you know i don't want to take up too more too much more of your time but you know little things that people can do to, to make a difference in the regenerative agriculture movement um i think is terribly important especially after reading the book and watching the documentary What can people on a local level, your your typical neighborhood, Tom and Sally living on, you know, whatever lane, what can we do to support the regenerative agriculture movement and make a difference in our communities there?
1: Man, I I think one thing is just finding local producers and patronizing those folks is is great. Uh, One of the big challenges there is... um, there's usually more production around people than what they realize, but there's a choke point in um, processing. Like the the there's uh, the USDA has a real monopoly on processing and the meat. You know what can be done with the meat if it doesn't go through a USDA inspected facility and stuff like that. Uh, there's some. I don't know if the the Prime Act went through from uh, uh, Thomas Massey, but that that was something that that you know would be important because like um, a butcher shop or even a higher end restaurant can receive a whole cow and then they can, they can butcher it out and they should be able to sell it directly to people. Uh, It gets dodgy, like selling it across state lines and all that stuff, but there should be more opportunity to, to just sell that stuff. So like uh, paying a little attention to any type of uh, legislation that improves our access directly to our food and and you know like the processing side we we saw this at the beginning you know the earlier stages of covid where the the you know people that work in these meat packing facilities they got sick and then the facilities got shut down and there you know there was this real choke point there and we should have some redundancies that that allow us to sidestep some of that stuff um and then if, if folks you know, buy the book or, you know, just just let people know that there is an alternative view to this uh, meatpocalypse view of of like climate change. I think right. that that's really valuable. You know, maybe Diana and I are, are foolish and, and didn't get the science right, but somebody said something that was really interesting. It was after we were on Joe Rogan and the guy said, if what Diana and Rob are saying is 80% wrong, the 20% that they have right, is still massive when we consider what, what's being advocated for within climate change and all this stuff. But he said, if what they're suggesting is 90% right and only 10% wrong, then we're on like this collision course with a calamity because um, the, the recommendations that are broadly being made by media, social media, government, world economic forum are so at odds with what really is sustainable and what's really good to, both mitigate climate change and also to, to deal with like economic infrastructure and all these things that we're just driving the the car off a off a cliff currently so i think that folks just taking a little little bit of time a little bit of cpu cycles to devote to understanding the topic of like well what is regenerative ag and regenerative animal husbandry um uh, is it true that you know raising um beef is going to be the primary driver of climate change or or is that a, a false statement and you know are there uh uh is the land that's allocated to meat production is that a waste of of that land should we be doing something else with it right. you know and and stuff like that i think just having some basic understandings of those topics would be really helpful because when we when we have folks ready to to vote and make policy and whatnot folks just don't understand the topic and and uh it's very compelling you know you look at what's being said uh, media social media and all that stuff and it's it's fascinating to me um we'll have folks that have been in this ancestral health scene and like uh they did the high carb low fat you know grain-based deal and it made them sick it didn't work for them um they they changed their eating they feel good but then they're like but you know i'm i'm really uh I feel guilty because I'm destroying the planet and it's like, and you're, you say, well, you know that the nutrition recommendations were wrong, right? Like, yeah. Well, is it possible that the climate change narrative around the animals is also wrong? And they're like, I don't know. Like, (laughs) you know, because it's very compelling and it's a big deal. And there's a, uh, man, you'll you'll get yourself labeled all all kinds of things by even questioning the climate change narrative. you know, oh, I've,
0: uh, I've been fighting that war for years as, and I know yeah. that you're really in the trenches of it. So for those of uh, listening out there that aren't familiar with the book and the and the movie, what what's your elevator pitch on that just to get somebody intrigued? I couldn't recommend it enough, but uh, tell everybody exactly uh, what's in that.
1: Yeah, so if folks want to learn more about that sacredcow.info is a good website to go to and basically we cover the health, environmental and ethical considerations of a meat inclusive food system. So mm-hmm. usually when we when these discussions happen somebody will say well meat causes cancer or meat causes all these health problems and you'll start unpacking that. And then as you begin unpacking it they'll say well that may all be true, but meat is damaging to the environment. And here's the ways that meat's damaging to the environment. So you got to shift the the discussion around that. And then if you get any headway on that, they'll say, well, it's still unethical to kill animals, to eat them, um, forgetting that so many animals are killed in the process of, you know, raising your soybeans and all that stuff. Right. So you really have to tackle all of this. You have to tackle all of it at the same time. It's a multi-pronged approach. I, I call it the vegan whack-a-mole game because you'll talk about health and then they'll pop something else up and then, you know, you have to hit all these things, but that's what we cover both in the book and the film. The f- book is very sequential. Like it, it's almost written for like a, a college, course on this stuff, like we really lay this stuff out. And we kind of go piece by piece through the whole thing. The film, it, it covers the same material, but much more from kind of a, a little bit more emotional and storytelling perspective, not as as uh, clinically driven. So cool. if somebody is new to this stuff, the the film may be a better place to jump in if somebody really wants to be able to know exactly what the arguments are and and really read the primary literature on it and stuff like that, the book is where to go.
0: Well, it's outstanding. You guys did a phenomenal job. Thank it's you. It's imp- it's important work. It truly is very very important work. And you know, thank you so much for throwing that out there and putting so much work behind that because I think it's it's critical stuff. And more thank people you. need need to be aware of it. And I'm going to keep telling everybody that I come across. We'll put I'll put all the links in the in the show notes and keep driving that boat because it's stuff that needs to be read and heard and seen by everyone. So, um, and sort of just opposite from that. I also, we also get a lot of questions about beef and uh, the grass fed versus grain fed uh, debate. So coming from someone like yourself, who's so entrenched in this, how much of a difference is there? And is it worth paying the extra two bucks to, you know, go to a local farm and, you know, getting that grass fed beef, or do you just do whatever your budget can uphold and, and do the best you can with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, health-wise, there's virtually no difference between the two. Um, for dairy, there's a big difference between pastured versus conventional. For eggs, there's a huge difference nutritionally between pastured and conventional. But for, for meat, there's just not that big of a difference. And this is one of the things that we've had people pissed at us about uh, because, you, you know, we would hope that there would be this big nutritional difference, but there's there really is not. There's a tiny difference in the amount... Of omega threes, pastured versus uh, conventional meat, but you need to eat like eight pounds of steak to uh, to grass-fed meat to get the same omega threes as you get in like a, a three-ounce piece of salmon. So it's not really the place to look for for um, omega threes. There are ethical considerations. There's environmental considerations. There's economic considerations for whether or not you want to to um, to, to do more the the grass-finished stuff. Um, we just mainly focus on supporting local folks who have an overall regenerative process. Regenerative doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% grass finished. Like Some of the, the local meat around here, there's a lot of uh, breweries and distilleries in the Flathead Valley that have you know, spent grain left over after they, they make their beer or whatever. And you could either compost that, uh, uh, stick it in a landfill, or you could feed it to animals. And so, you know, using that to help overwinter animals is a great idea. Sure. It doesn't necessarily perfectly make the animals grass fed, but it also doesn't, you know, negatively influence the nutritional profile in, in any, you know, qualitative way. Um, and for overall, it, it's creating a closed loop system here within the Flathead Valley, which is great. And I think that this is a, another example of where if you want 100% pasture finished stuff, great. Go for that, like support the folks doing that. But um, regenerative doesn't mean that it has to be a hundred percent pasture finished all the time, every day, everywhere. And I think that that is something that that folks need to to better understand. And it's one of these um, really polarizing topics that you know, well, it's got to be a hundred percent grass finished or or nothing.
0: Great. Well, you you've cleared up a lot, and it's great to hear it from the horse's mouth. High protein, moderate fat, low carb. If you want to use a little carbohydrates around your workouts, that's totally fine. If you want to throw in a little bit of fruit with your carnivore diet, that's fine. You be you. It really has to do with the individual. And I've been preaching that and beating that horse for years. So to have someone like yourself that I've been following and admiring for so many years to reinforce a lot of that has been invaluable. And I'm sure people are going to get a lot from this discussion. I don't want to take too much more of your time here on St. Patrick's Day you've got drinking to do. Uh, We've got to make margaritas tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, uh, I just want to tell you that this has been a huge honor and a privilege for me being such a fan for so many years and the impact that you've had on the industry has been invaluable. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you for being here. And uh, I hope maybe we can do this again sometime.
1: Anytime you want me to bring down property values, I'll do it. So thank you. <laughs> well, hey
0: man, we are the real estate equivalent of like government housing, so Perfect. it's only okay. going to go up here. For having you on, so thank you. I'm going to let you go. Enjoy your holiday, and uh, again, on behalf of you know all my listeners and all my podcast listeners, thank you so much, and uh, have a great St. Patty's Day and a great week.
1: You too. Take care.